The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Valerie, her guests, and callers. Now here's your host, Valerie Kirkgaard. I am here. I am your host, and I'm delighted to be here. You're listening to Waking Up in America. And I was just talking with our guest before the show, Dan Wolf. Uh, what a sweetie. Uh, when you find out what he's up to, I believe that some parts of you will be touched, too. So we've been doing this for 22 years. We've been really bringing excellent conversations to, into the radio, whether it has to do with philanthropy or nutrition or whatever. When I run across a master or an expert, I say, gosh, could you join me on the radio? And you'd be pleased to know how many times they've said yes. So the quality of human being that has passed by here over this 22 years um, leaves me moved and touched. And I, I I love how all of this has worked and how we've all created a community of powerful things together. Most recently in my life, I want to let you know, I've just become a secured party creditor. I'm not sure of the ramifications of all of that yet. But I'm having more fun than I thought I could ever have. Um, many of my loyal followers know that I was into three foreclosures last year. Well, I'm beginning to win them. And I'm winning them because I have, um, I'm learning very powerful information. And I'm enjoying that. And I actually have an attorney on the show that I can hear gasping in the background, so I can't figure out whether my conversation has horrified him or excited him. We'll find out later. Anyway, this is what I am up to now, and this has to do with my friends and I were talking this morning. Um, I was a multimillionaire in 2006, and by the end of 2007, I was in three foreclosures and wondering how to keep the lights on. So whatever you have to do and wherever you have to explore, know that part of what this show is about today is the fact that the persistence of the human Spirit will find answers to you that you might not have known about before, whether that answer is something that I'm doing or something that Dan is doing or somebody else is doing. Uh, Keep your ears open because there's lots of interesting things going on out there, and I personally, you know, I'm still in my house, and it's two years later. And um, what moved me actually into this whole thing was hearing a story about a man who had killed his entire family and himself because of what had happened with um, in the foreclosure market and have, having lost all of his life. And when I found out certain facts, I went, I'm just, I need to use stories like this to keep me moving because sometimes if pain isn't like horribly intolerable, you can kind of tolerate it. And you go, oh, well, you know, it's, that shoe is rather uncomfortable. It's rubbing, but it's not really that bad. And I'll just finish what I'm doing over here first. So. Dan Wolf is a guy that um, said, this shoe hurts, it doesn't work, um, I'm going to be an attorney. <laughs> Dan, say hello to our listeners and say hello to uh, Hi, Val, and hello, listeners. <laughs> yeah, because, and I brought you on this show because I found out from Eileen Proctor, bless her soul, that you had actually um, won a rather large lawsuit 
through um, the court systems against Saddam Hussein. And I thought, hmm, this sounds like a really good thing to have done. And then I was further impressed when I found out that you had focused your um, attentions on helping people in Africa, and I had gone to the State of the World Forum and uh, to the Nobel Laureates Conference in Rome in 2005, uh, Don, Dan, and a lot of people were looking at, you know, how to do that too, but you as an individual doing that? That's pretty astounding. Now, you're only 48 years old, but you have the experience of somebody when you talk. I mean, you got activated at an early age. So could you let our listeners know when you first turned your eye towards uh, the social scene and um, what you imagined for yourself at that time? Well, you know, I've always uh, been, I guess, a a bit of a radical, a bit of an activist. My parents uh, are both from a a liberal background, and they instilled certain values in me. So I guess, you know, growing up, my dad always... What kind of uh, values? You said uh, instilled certain values, like tell the truth, or what kind of values? Uh, well, essentially to uh, be honest uh, and to be true to yourself and to uh, make a contribution with your life. And that's, that's the main value that I'm talking about is, is really um, making a contribution. And so I, I didn't know always exactly, you know, what that contribution was going to be. Um, but uh, I felt uh, a compelling need to do that. That's very interesting because about... 30 or 40 years ago, I went and toured a bunch of tombstones on the East Coast just because I was totally intrigued. And one of the tombstones showed up in more than one cemetery, and it was, Behold and see as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare for death. You'll follow me. <laughs> now, I, <laughs> this thing showed up in like three different cemeteries between the 1600s and 1900s. But you know what? I decided to um, live my life as though it mattered, what I did. I mean, it was like that tombstone is what made me say, because you've only got one sentence, Dan. Yeah, well, you, you, yeah exactly. We yeah. have one life so and what's your one sen- chance. What's your one sentence? Dan, as of today, what is Dan Wolf's one sentence? Uh, there's a lot of injustice in the world, and with a little bit of effort, we couldn't remedy it. Okay, so I would say on your tombstone would be we can remedy it. We can remedy some of the injustice. Yeah. We, we can re- Okay, that would be your tombstone then maybe. We can remedy injustice. Yeah, I would say some of the injustice. No, okay. Not all of it. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll put we can remedy injustice and then in quotes underneath, we'll put some of it, okay? Is that good? Right. So we'll actually some, of it any- some of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, there you go, because you can see this guy's had a really valuable life, so we'll give him a really big tombstone so he's got like three lines instead of just one. How's that? <laughs> Sounds good. Now tell Okay, Wonder, I, I don't know, like Clark Kent, I imagine you pulling off your shirt and saying, Saddam Hussein, I will take you to court for human shields. Would you yeah, tell it me? was nothing like that. <laughs> how, did, how did it work? Um, well, it's a really long story, but well, basically... Give us, give us um, some bullets. Well, I, I ended up representing a group of American citizens who were taken hostage uh, by the Iraqi regime during the first Gulf War, that is, following uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, uh, when Saddam basically issued an edict saying that no American citizens uh, would be permitted to leave the country and then ordered his security forces uh, to round up whatever, whatever, whichever American citizens they could find and send them out to uh, human shield sites 
uh, throughout Iraq, uh, strategic sites uh, such as uh, military installations, uh, oil, um, uh, petroleum plants, uh, chemical weapons. And they would do that because we wouldn't want to kill our own citizens, right? They were protecting their own strategic properties, right? That's, That's exactly what it was about. Basically, they were setting up American citizens as human shields to prevent the United States and its coalition allies from liberating Kuwait. Now, what international so, law applies to that circumstance that you just described? There is a international convention that is almost uniformly uh, adhered to uh, called the uh, Convention Against Hostage-Taking, and uh, Saddam's actions obviously were a blatant violation of Iraq's international legal obligations under that uh, treaty. How are we as a country, just as a sidebar, how are we as a country doing with respect to that particular um, law? Well, I don't think we've taken anybody hostage. Uh, we may have been engaged in some other uh, potential violations of human rights. Oh, like but, prisoners uh, of war or something like that? Uh, violations of the Geneva Conventions on Treatment of Prisoners of War, um, violations perhaps of the Convention uh, Prohibiting Torture. But uh, to my knowledge, the United States government has never uh, taken... Uh, innocent civilians hostage and use them uh, to extract, use, condition their release on the extracting of concessions from another country. Yeah, well, actually, you and I earlier were talking about how this normally would be thought to be something that would be handled in The Hague, and you, quite to my amazement, um, were telling me that this was actually handled in the U.S. court system, and I wondered if you could... I want U.S. citizens and U.S. Um, sovereigns to know that there are more things available to you than you conceivably know of. And I love Dan because he just breaks the barriers when he talks. Well, what happened was that I actually represented a long time ago, uh, around early 1990s, an American citizen who had been tortured by the Saudis. uh, And he had brought a suit against the Saudi government. And ultimately, the United States Supreme Court ruled that there was no jurisdiction uh, in the U.S. courts to uh, govern that lawsuit and threw it out. So I became involved in an intensive effort to change American law to allow suits against foreign states that violated the most basic and fundamental human rights of American citizens. And how old were you? Uh, about 20, uh, no, about 31 years old, 32. So, okay, I just want, I'm going to do little things like this because I want people to get that it can be them too that's, that's taking on things like you've taken this on. Yeah, I represented him when I started representing him when I was about 31 or so, and and ultimately the the case was denied by the Supreme Court when I, in 1993 when I was 33, and then I engaged in this effort to to as I say to amend the law, and ultimately uh, the law was amended, although not quite in as broad terms as I had hoped. It permitted suits against terrorist countries, that is, countries that the United States government had placed on the terrorism list, like Iraq or Iran like or insurance Syria. Uh, I'm sorry? Is it like an insurance policy in a sense? I mean, can, do you actually collect the damages from the U.S. government? You don't actually connect? No, 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 not at all. These are suits against the terrorist country, uh-huh. and they were, they're only uh, authorized when a terrorist country of uh, commits terrorist acts, namely hostage-taking, torture, that, uh, murder. Of How did US they get enforced? Well, uh, they might not, but a number of these terrorist countries, uh, and, and in particular Iraq, have had assets that were frozen by um, the United States government uh, at a certain point in history. 
And so uh, my concept when I brought this suit was to uh, ultimately collect against the frozen assets of Iraq, should we be so fortunate as to obtain judgments. It uh, turned out that um, at that particular time, there was no, the, the law did not allow for collection against terrorist assets. So that was going to be a somewhat of a hurdle to overcome during the course of the suit. But ultimately, uh, we managed to get another law enacted. That's that in fact, outrageously good. Do you know what odds of what you'd get? Would you, the people take on projects like yours, and it goes on for years. Yeah, this went on for years, too. I mean, this suit was initially brought in 1999, and we collected in March 25, 2003, literally on the eve of the... Yeah, but four years? I'm telling you, I'm impressed. I've had a lot of very interesting people on this show, and to actually take something from complaint to collection in four years is actually, you should get bonus points for doing it under time. Oh yeah, that was that was quite quick. Um, but I'll have you know that uh, that suit was on, brought on behalf of 180 American citizens. I represent 240 more who I'm still fighting for today. So in that, for those for those 240, the the uh, time has been uh, quite an issue. No, I, I get it. The um, I, I heard a figure of 95 million. Was it 95 million per person, or 95 million for the whole thing? Or and, uh-huh. and I'm trying to figure out how that. $95 million turned into your work in Africa. Right. It was $95 million for the 180 so it averaged about $500,000 per person. Yeah. Well, that and, wasn't enough to get you to Africa, was it? Uh, well, uh, no, no, that wouldn't be enough to get me to Africa, but uh, I was entitled to a fee uh, from each claimant, and with my portion of that fee, I was able to get to Africa. I'll be danged. And you, did you know you were going to do that the whole time? I knew that I was going to take a substantial portion of any proceeds that I would get, in any case that I was going to be going to be wildly successful on, and begin a foundation. And I knew that I was going to concern myself with humanitarian efforts in the developing world. I probably wasn't certain that it was going to be Africa, but uh, that... that I guess in 2003, when I started this, at that point I knew it was going to be Africa. Wow. I'm, I'm totally impressed. Well, you have that fund. Um, what are your foundations? I have two. Uh, one of them is called the George Wolf Memorial Trust. That's named after my father. And it is a gift-giving foundation uh, that doesn't actually engage in operations, but it funds other organizations, including... Uh, most important, most uh, prominently for me, my second foundation, which is called the International Lifeline Fund, or Lifeline. And Lifeline is focused on high-impact, low-cost intervention, uh, getting the most bang out of a dollar to relieve human misery and environmental degradation uh, in the developing world, and in particular in sub-Saharan Africa. Do you know Pierre Prodervand? I do not. Oh, if you come across his book, you'd enjoy it immensely. He wrote a book years ago called Listening in Africa. Uh And this man tells a story about when he went to Africa. I love this man. Um, He talks about how some of the African villages were, like, so poor that this woman would put rocks in water and tell her children that they could eat when the rocks were um, soft, things like that, that they were cooking newspapers. And this... Mm. this, um, an old lady in one of the villages, 
somebody came up with a, one of the French publications came up with enough money to buy a grain mill. And right. one of the um, ladies in one of the villages thought of this idea where a woman would pay a penny to use the grain and a penny for a new mill. Within 10 years, those mills were all over Africa, and the time that people were taking, trying to take care of their children and things, they used to have to walk 10 hours to go to town and make the evening meal. By the time they'd done everything they needed, 10 hours of the day was spent. So these mills revolutionized Africa, and he was saying, and and I wondered if you would comment on this, but the hardest thing in the world for him was to stand next to a starving African and not feed them. You know, he would do things to help them be able to take care of themselves. I noticed on your site, your lifeline says helping people help themselves. Right. So, you know, what have you had to deal with as far as that kind of thing is concerned? Have you had to stand next to a starving person and do you feed them? Or, or, or you know, well, where are you in the yeah. process? I mean, you have to draw lines because, you know, you couldn't just go there and, you know, empty your bank account and just give money to people. That really isn't going to have... Uh, too much of a long-term impact so uh, on too many people. And so, you know, I try and uh, identify interventions like the intervention that you just talked about that's going to have a long-term and sustainable impact on uh, both the people that were directly benefiting and their communities. Yeah, so totally. And a lot of bang for your buck, really what too. We're trying to. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what you were saying about uh, an intervention that... Um, reduces the amount of time that people spend engaged in tasks that shouldn't take so much time, uh, freeing up their time and giving them income generating, uh, uh, giving them the ability to engage in income generating projects. That's very much the kind of thing that uh, we're trying to promote through the International Lifeline Fund. So are you doing anything with these little micro loans? Is that part of your work at all, or um... yes, yes, it is. Although um, it's it's evolved in a way that is not quite the traditional um, micro uh, enterprise approach. Would you let Basically, our listeners know what micro loans are and what that approach is? Some may not know. Well, basically, uh, it, it is a, an innovation of, you know, providing credit to people who would, uh, very, very small amounts of credit to people who are not otherwise credit worthy. And we're talking Often, like 25 bucks, 50 Yeah, we're bucks. talking, could be 25, 50, 100, 200 dollars, um, to, to, uh, usually, the, usually the targets of these loans are women who have some type of um, very you know small scale uh, business opportunity that they want to pursue, and various uh, NGOs that are engaged in um, microfinancing will provide loans now to them to an enable them. Oh, sorry, an NGO is a non governmental organization. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's um, that's like second nature to me. I, I guess I think everybody in the world knows what an NGO is, but uh, thanks for uh, reminding me that. Bingo was uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, it is it, that is essentially what what they do, and and the, the repayment rate on them, if the if they're targeted in the right way, can be extremely high because what they'll do is they'll they'll target a particular community. And so there becomes a lot of pressure among one's peers to pay the loan because if they don't get paid back, then uh, loans might not be available for others in the community. Well, they actually make a lot of difference. <clears throat> so they're not just, do they pay the loan back? There's something that showed up because that loan was present and they want more of it. Exactly. But, to look, but paying a loan back is very important because that pays for the next loan. Exactly. 
Oh, then it becomes perfect. a self-sustaining intervention. And uh, this, this sort of thing has had um, a significant success in, in relieving uh, um, third world poverty, but there's, there's still a ways to go. And it's not a panacea. It is an important tool. Now, do you, are, do you know Mel Duncan at all in his nonviolent peace force? Don't know him either. Sorry. Well, I tell you, these are um, a couple of people, especially um, Mel Duncan. I haven't talked to Pierre in like 15 years so I'm not sure what his level of activity is. But these were people that were living their lives to uh, make things different. Mel Duncan actually takes a, a, real, a trained peace force without any weapons whatsoever and goes back and gets children returned. A lot of these terrorist countries actually kidnap children to train them. Yeah. And Mel actually goes in and negotiates with the guys that have swiped the kids and gets a lot of them back. So That's fantastic. I mean, the odds of... Either one of you doing the work you do is astounding under the well, fact I, of how the what he does is, What he does is truly astounding. I, I can't imagine how we're going to be successful doing that. That, that. I'm sure I wouldn't be. And, uh, well, people are beginning amazing. to wake up, Dan. You know, back in 2001, I went to the State of the World Forum in New York City, and um, Alan Cranston was there. I loved that man. Um, I know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he, uh, he was on Waking Up in America. He's one of your predecessors who was here. What a great guy. Uh, but to make a long story short, there were a number of African leaders, unfortunately, I don't recall their name, and I was there with some, a lot of very intelligent people were there, and we had a lot of amazing lunchtime meetings. And during this intelligent person thing, we had a conversation about how American bankers and global bankers had actually loaned money to African leaders knowing full well that they didn't know how to manage the money so that we could actually take ownership of the countries, which, you know, to some degree we've done. And then they look like they don't know what they're doing and why should they anyway? Because they were never given the proper training. So how do we interface this of what you're doing with... um, getting the countries standing back up on their feet and having representation or that that puts them on equal footing. Right. Well what we're trying to do, you know, with our organization is to work at the at the very uh, the very the, the, the grassroots. Uh-huh. Um, we're not dealing with governments uh, other than in insofar as we have to in order to get permits and such. But um, but we're trying to uh, help people in the community directly. Now, I know that one of the places that you've been is uh, Dafur, and I know that you've been in Kosovo. How are you picking where you're going, and what have you seen? Oh, well, Kosovo was something that I did uh, back in in 1999 uh, before I started the foundation. I've always been involved with refugee and, and human rights issues ever since I started my legal career. And so I was working with a group called Refugees International, and I went to actually Albania. It's a long story, but essentially I, I was uh, looking into the issue of how the population would be of Kosovar uh, refugees who had fled to Albania would be housed during the winter months because that was a major issue at that point. Fortunately, the crisis ended before the winter, and a lot of uh, suffering was avoided. Uh, in terms of Darfur, that's really was the uh, first place uh, where I decided to uh, initiate uh, or launch a program for International Lifeline Fund. And I went there because once I had started this foundation, I was not ex- I, I was not exactly sure 
what type of humanitarian intervention that I would be able to engage in that that, that could really have an impact. I, I, I knew what I wanted uh, yeah. to do, but I didn't I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it. The one thing I I did have a lot of experience with was refugee and human rights advocacy, and I had been associated with this organization, Refugees International, doing volunteer work for them on and off for 20 years. And during that 20-year time, was there a particular, were you trying to get them citizenship? Were you trying to get them justice? What was your actual skill set that was being trained? Well, it, it really depended on the particular crisis. I worked for years with Vietnamese refugees in which I... Uh, 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 challenged um, procedures in Hong Kong for screening Vietnamese boat people to t- determine whether or not they were refugees or genuine economic or, or genuine refugees or economic migrants. So uh, there, I was doing legal work. How did you uh, make did, that distinction between well, migrant and, and, and refugee? Well, yeah. there's, a, there's a there's a convention, a, a treaty that uh, determ- that that sets forth the criteria for. What is a refugee? A refugee is generally somebody who has fled their country, uh, who has been persecuted on account of their race, their nationality, uh, their ethnicity, or their religion. And so uh, applying those criteria to the particular circumstances of an individual, you can pretty much determine whether, well, you know, if you can, if you can ascertain the facts, you can, you can make a reasonable uh, determination as to whether or not they fit within the criteria. And in fact, our courts in this country and courts in uh, various other countries around the world do that every day. Do that so what? Do that every day. They make those kinds of determinations. Did the you ever read call- the book Shanghai oh. Girls? That's no, I have not. Well, it's very interesting because it's about two Shang- women from Shanghai getting into the United States and what the criteria are. This is at the turn of the 1900s for them to get here. And once again. Um, I think that we think of our own problems as local problems or problems of the United States of America, and what you're actually talking about is how the planet as a whole is sorting and moving forward, are we not, with is this person a refugee, because if they are, they're handled this way. Um, Are they an immigrant? Okay, this is a different set of things, and actually sorting that out. And so it sounds like you somehow get inside that process and speed it up. Is there any truth to that? Um, I try and make the process uh, not necessarily faster, although I have tried to do that in some instances, but really to try and make it fair and more just. I guess if there's a one underlying theme of my professional life, it's trying to, as I said before, bring a little bit of justice to the world. And I, I'm offended by unfairness and injustice. And you know what happened in that particular instance was that the the Hong Kong government uh, had put, had basically was sick and tired of having so many Vietnamese refugees or asylum seekers appear on their shores. And so they just decided that uh, they would screen out the ref- they would screen people out uh, to determine their status. And they said in advance that only 10% of these people were genuine refugees and the other 90% were economic migrants. So lo and behold, they start the screening process and 90% of the individuals are determined to be uh, uh, economic migrants and 10% are determined to be Political refugees. It was all basically determined in advance. Hmm. So, well, hey, uh, we it was a sham. It was a sham process. <laughs> I, know, I, try, I totally get it. We'll be back with Dan Wolf and the rest of the story on the sham. You're working, discovering how the international world is working here. You're discovering what 
one person can do when they make up their mind to do it and they pick up the right tools. You're listening to Waking Up in America. This is Dr. Val Kirkgaard. We'll be back after our diamond alignment and we'll give you more of the fabulous details on how Dan won the war and hasn't given it up yet. We live in a world that is more alive with possibility than ever before in history. Yet it is easy to get lost in the confusion and chaos of such an accelerated world. How do we stay connected and aligned with the unlimited potential that lies within us and soar in these exciting yet challenging times? Diamond Alignment, a sacred technology for the 21st century, offers high-speed connection and alignment with this divine power within, both convenient and profound. The six-minute multi-sensory diamond experience delivered via the internet clears your mind, relaxes your body, and creates inner peace no matter what is going on around you. The Diamond Alignment Experience effortlessly keeps you charged with joy and equanimity and greater focus and clarity throughout your day. When you experience the expansive energy of Diamond Alignment, you activate the unlimited wealth and potential within you. My goodness, we seem to have something going on in the background. Um, Did you hear something here? I don't know if it's a, uh, there's a station mic that's on or what's going on, but um, I'm sure that everything will get quiet, quiet and wonderful terrifically soon. We want to thank the people that make Waking Up in America possible, and this is the time we acknowledge the good guys. And Jacqueline Joy, I just like your um, meditation, transmission, all different things that we refer to that as. Um, sometimes when the show has been really feisty and occasionally people will get their little hackles up about something, some subject they're passionate in, after I play the Diamond Alignment at the half hour, a funny thing happens, they're more calm afterwards. So you've definitely created something here. I've been listening to Diamond Alignment now for about three or four years. It, I can feel my body relax as soon as it starts. Um, it's available to you. Um, go to our website at wakingupinamerica.com. You can see what this week's guests look like. Unfortunately, um, for some reason, we have no text on you, Dan, but um, we do have your picture of you in Africa, and I'm sure the text will show up quite shortly. I did so, send you a file. No, I know. I sent the file in. But for okay. some reason, we have a picture and no text, or at least on my Macintosh. So. You're young and you're good-looking and you're dedicated, it's clear. You can tell by looking at Dan's face. So we're talking about right now about philanthropy in Africa. We're talking about how he actually won the suit against Saddam Hussein and um, how he helped sort out the, the difference between the migrants and the political refugees of the Vietnamese boat people, which I think is just like on a, that's a whole show in itself, I'm sure, um, what those people go through. So now it is. Sorry. Pardon? It's a long story. <laughs> well, it's 2009 now. Uh, where's the focus of your attention, and um, 
how do the listeners listeners participate in this? Yeah, well, the focus of my attention now is, as I mentioned before, on sub-Saharan Africa and uh, finding ways to uh, create sustainable interventions that can lift people um, out of poverty, relieve human misery, and relieve environmental degradation. So that, those, are the, that, those are the focus. That's the focus of my attention. Um, how people can become involved, uh, essentially, would be to uh, 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 educate themselves about the situation in Africa. Okay, what, uh, what, and which situation would you... I mean, there's so many situations in Africa. Uh, what, what would make some big difference? What's calling out the loudest right now? Well, the thing to me that is the, uh, the, the, the looming disaster on the horizon is the deforestation issue. And certainly that's what uh, a lot of my energy is being focused on because, well, for instance, in the, in the areas that we are dealing with, uh, Uganda and Darfur, for instance, Sudan, uh, those countries have lost one-third of their forest cover in the last 20 years. Wow. Uh, and that's, that, that's no different from anywhere else uh, in East Africa, so far as I can tell. Uh, basically, by 2050, Uganda, which is essentially, you know, a very lush uh, environment, uh, or has been historic for the last, you know, millenniums, uh, is going to lose the remainder of its forest cover, and it's going to look like Haiti. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, the suffering that you see now in Africa is going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what it will become. Situations like Darfur are going to uh, emerge all over the continent. So and stop so right there's now. Going to... Stop. Right. Because really, sure. when you say situations like Darfur, that means a, a whole sea of things to you. But you need to give this some color and some definition here. Uh, about what that situation is. When you say situations, you see something in your mind. What do you see? Uh, well, in Darfur, what, what Darfur is, a, is the western part of Sudan, where there's been basically a uh, genocidal war for the last five years in which um, basically half the population or more has been displaced. About two million people have been displaced from their homes. Uh, several hundred thousand people have been killed. And it, there's a uh, brutal uh, fight for what is left of the dwindling resources of that part of the world. Okay, now who's, who's fighting whom? Right. Well, essentially uh, what happened was that uh, the, uh, there's a, there were, in Darfur you have two populations that have historically competed with each other. One is a um, nomadic population of um, Arab herders of cattle and camel, and the other is a uh, sedentary population of black African uh, farmers, essentially, uh, who uh, till the land. And so there's always been a competition for that land, uh, just as there was in the West, in our country, 150, 120 years ago. So, Dan, who's denuding the land? Well, what's happened is that everybody's denuding the land because population has increased as, uh, with, the, with the climate changes. The Sahara has moved further and further south, and uh, the land has been deforested. One of the principal causes of that deforestation is the use of, believe it or not, of firewood for cooking, which uh, contributes to about one-half of the deforestation in Africa. Which is actually, interestingly enough, because chopsticks are doing the same thing to China. Did you know that? <laughs> That sounds 
um, unbelievable to me. Well, it is. <laughs> when, they, when you hear that, it's, it's amazing. When you hear the number of chopsticks, disposable right. chopsticks, right. actually, it, you would be totally amazed at what's happened to China's um, reserves, forest reserves on that. Wow. Well, and that is amazing. So, so this is something that you can get your teeth into, because this is about fires and, and where the wood's going, right? But what about issues of water and re- reforestation, and, or is it just too unstable? Well, uh, reforestation probably, you know, there have been efforts made in various parts of Africa. I'm not familiar with any significant reforestation uh, efforts in Darfur, probably for the reason that you just mentioned, that it's too unstable. Mm. So here you are, you're in Darfur, all of this is going on, Dan's standing there, He's won the thing in the background, and he's here to make a difference, and he's going to help right on justice. What are you doing in Darfur? Well, uh, as I said before, I was going to Darfur with Refugees International, uh, essentially on an advocacy mission to um, monitor human rights abuses and to um, suggest, uh, to make recommendations for how to improve the situation there. And while I was there, I learned about the um, terrible uh, problems associated with well, deforestation, and also with use of wood for cooking, which extends beyond the environmental issues. There are a lot of uh, livelihood and health issues involved in people cooking on an open fire. So where are we with HIV, AIDS, and and Defour? I have really don't know how significant a problem HIV, AIDS, is in Darfur. Throughout the Sudan, I know it's a problem, and certainly um, throughout East Africa, it's a huge problem. But probably the issue of AIDS in Darfur uh, has not been, I, I doubt it's been extensively studied. So you've made the recommendations, right? Who are you, re- who are you making the recommendations to, to, the, um, to the, the team, the, the head? No, no, no. Well, Refugees International is a refugee advocacy group that I've been associated with, and so we were uh, basically reporting on, we were basically acting as kind of a, an, a uh, a, almost like a, a, a news organization, but an advocacy issue-oriented uh, news organization. So, um, so those, so we would make recommendations and report on what was happening to U.S. government officials, to U.N. officials, to uh, foreign de- for, uh, foreign government officials, etc. Uh, and, and then just just shine a light on the problem and uh, make the general public more aware of the problem. Uh, I wrote an article that got published in the an op-ed piece that got published in the Washington Post as a result of that mission, um, and uh, met with a number of government officials and con- congressional officials to try and. Uh, influence uh, American policy and international policy. So this is what one man can do, what one woman can do. You're listening to Waking Up in America. I'm going to give you a quick acknowledgement of the good guys that make this show possible. If you want a really high-quality mailing list, right around 100,000 people on a weekly basis, you can make arrangements with Raw at Stardoves at 828-665-0411. Let 100,000 of the right people know what you're up to. Waking Up in America is known as Radio for Intelligent People. So if you're listening, um, we're going to claim this whole thing intelligent. And by doing that, you can follow through on some of these things that you'll see on the website. Um, Take a visit over to Dan Wolf's site. And Dan Wolf, your website is actually... www.lifelinefund.org. That's L-I-F-E-L-I-N-E, fund, F-U-N-D, 
www.giveanddan.org. There you go. And if you're tired and you want to just get away from this whole conversation, I have a great place that I recommend you to in San Pancho, Mexico. It's Roberta's Bungalows, and Steve and Diana are there, and you can call them. This is a toll-free U.S. number at 971-239-4120. That's 971-239-4120. And there's some outrageously good times and great prices to be had in Mexico. Um, Mexico has always honored the dollar, so you can have a lot of fun down there and at a great price. And the truth about swine flu is it was all made up anyway. So <laughs> I don't know if you know this. I don't think God did. Like 30,000 30, people a year die from influenza. 30,000 every year. That's just a given. That's what happened. Do you ever hear about that? No. Do you know how many people died in the U.S. from swine flu, of which didn't come from pigs anyway? Uh, probably 11. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think it's 10, between 8 okay. and 10. Okay, so no, I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I think it was all uh, hype, just like, uh, what was the other one, bird, bird flu or whatever? Oh, yeah. Um, I found out that one of the reasons that they, they wanted to sell a million vaccinations, okay? So they got everybody so freaked out that they probably will sell their stupid million vaccinations. However, the action was rather costly because Cairo and Egypt took it seriously and slaughtered all their pigs. Did you know that? I, I didn't, but it doesn't surprise me. 300,000 pigs bit the dust in in, <laughs> in Egypt for no good reason because people were manipulating the market. So I only this comes up only because the rates in Mexico were disgustingly low because of this. And if you tell them, Steve and Diana, that I sent you, they'll give you a discount. So there you go. <laughs> okay. uh, not, you know, not, have you ever heard the phrase non-illegitimous carborundum S? Uh, no. It's actually carved over one of the doorways at the University of Southern California, and it means don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. So you can say non-illegitimous carborundum S and get absolutely no trouble whatsoever, and you can even say the rest of it because we can say actually anything within reason here on, and sometimes not in reason, on Internet radio. So there you go. So is there any kind of like, insider information or any kind of project that's about to come up that we could all get excited about or something. You've worked your yourself silly over quite a few years, and you've gotten amazing results. Well, I can only speak to the projects that, that we're doing, and I think that, that they're very exciting, and they offer... Uh, incredible potential to to lift people out of poverty, as I mentioned, and to um, relieve environmental stress. I just talked about the fuel efficient stoves. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That was. Um, what are the, you actually didn't give us any detail on the little darlings? How do they work? Well, basically, it, these are uh, stoves that are made out of local materials: rice uh, husk, a, a burnable material that's mixed with clay. It could be rice husk. It could be sand dust, uh, sawdust. It could be actually donkey dung or, or cow dung. Uh-huh. And what happens is you, you, you mix the clay and the, the, this burnable organic material, and you form a trapezoidal-shaped brick. You then burn the bricks in a, in a kiln. And what happens is, of course, the burnable material uh, disintegrates, burns away, and it leaves tiny little air pockets in the bricks. So you create a, light, a, a lightweight brick. You take the six bricks, you form a... Uh, you, put, you, you form them into a circle, and you create essentially a insulated combustion chamber that traps the heat on the inside and is cool on the outside. What does it look like, and a beehive or something? 
yeah, a little bit. I guess you could say that because you you clay around it. Yeah. And uh, and you create a stove, and you it's dimensioned in such a way, it's proportioned in such a way as to increase the heat transfer, maximize the heat transfer to the pot, and create the most efficient combustion that it can create. So uh, in that way, you uh, reduce the amount of wood that you need for cooking, therefore uh, reducing the amount of uh, uh, trees that need to be cut down. You uh, save people a lot of time, either uh, save them time collecting wood or save them uh, money buying wood or buying charcoal. Uh, you, you also address another issue, which is a huge issue of indoor air pollution that creates uh, uh, respiratory diseases, which are uh, one of the leading causes of death in, in Africa and the entire wow. developing world. So if you, for instance, go into a, a, I take you into a hut in some African village somewhere, and a woman is cooking in that hut, you will last literally about 45 seconds before your eyes are going to start cheering and you're going to cough uncontrollably, and all you can think about is getting outside of that hut. And now imagine that woman and her children uh, cooking inside that hut two hours, three hours, four hours a day, God. every day for the entire year. So you, the, the level of toxicity of, of uh, substance that they are exposed to is uh, mind-boggling. And the and, reason they don't have their stoves outside is because? Oh, well, they do cook outside um, much of the year, but sometimes uh, it's raining, and, uh, and so frequently uh, uh, people are cooking inside. So they can cook outside or inside, but even cooking outside, you're going to be exposed to that. No, but a lot of people cook inside. It never, this, this whole conversation never crossed my mind as a possibility even once. So I'm sitting here going, wow, and I had read lots of stuff by Margaret Mead, who used to talk about the South Sea Islanders and their um, outdoor cooking. It was really kind of cool. Like they built a community center mm-hmm. where where people would go to a, a, a central stove and cook. That was right. one of the societies. Yeah, no, the, people, people in Africa, in the countries that we deal with, they will never cook communally. They, it's ingrained in their culture. Uh, people cook individually. Also, by the way, the winds often make it impossible to cook outside. So oh, wow. a, lot of the meals, a, a lot of the meals are cooked inside. You know, of course, my mind is going to, gee, I wonder if we could give this whole conversation a solar boost, but probably the weather isn't good enough to do that, huh? Like there, somehow there have- we could create heat through solar. There have been, there are such things as solar cookers, solar ovens that have been inter- interventions um, that have been tried in various uh, communities in Africa and various refugee and ID settings. Uh, but it's a very, very difficult uh, intervention because it, it, it's hard enough to get people to change habits uh, that have lasted, you know, since, since time immemorial. Um, and get, getting them to cook with a stove, which they're still at least using wood. Getting people to cook with solar uh, is that much more difficult. Oh, There's a lot of expense involved and so forth. Yeah. Now, it's really a very interesting journey you're on, and you're young, too. So, well, I've got, I'm, I'm, I, I need to be young because I have a long, long way to go. <laughs> well, I, see, I totally see that. But here you are at 48, which I consider basically a whippersnapper, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> so... I certainly feel like you know I'm a, I'm still a, a teenager, so um, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, <laughs> so it's like okay, so with the way my aunt lived to be 103 years old, and personally, if she could, if she'd eaten properly, she would have lived to be a lot older. She used to eat the most revolting things, but she played golf every day till she was 85. 
and that set her up as um, she was the fastest person I ever met in a walker. I couldn't keep up with her. She was just like, and then and then her other secret to life, Dan, was she read thousand page books, and she wow. she always said she would die after she finished her last good book. And what was that? I I never knew what it was because by the time I got up, I got to make sure I don't read it. Out. But I'll tell you, she did. She read thousand, and I'm sure she did. I'm sure she read that last book, and she read War and Peace, and you know all the really long stuff. And that was that was one of her secrets. So I I just admire her tremendously, and I know that she didn't make old age through um, through good through good eating, but she did found the country club in Vancouver. And she said that being on the links with the leaders of the world is what kept her young. I imagine that's you true. Know? She said, you have no idea of what it's like to play golf. And, of course, I didn't. You know, that was not how I was brought up. But she brought me up to appreciate the value of a good conversation. <clears throat> so does your company actually raise the funds for the training? Because what it was sounding like there for a while was is that you were more of a a team observing what kind of things could be done to contribute, and then with the stoves, I can feel you in action, you know? Yeah, well, we do that with stoves and also with our water program. But, um, you know, we, we, we do provide the, the or actually I should say I provide, uh, have provided uh, up till now um, basically the, the almost all the funding for the organization. Though Now that we've had um, a certain level of success and have made, Substantial impact on going out and uh, trying to raise money for our programs. In fact, we're having our we're having our sort of coming out event uh, at the end of, <clears throat> at the end of this month here in Washington D.C. Um, our and first public event? fundraiser. It's a it's it's a fundraiser uh, on September 24th uh, here in Washington D.C. where we're going to have a uh, we're we're combined with a organization that uh, that uh, an art gallery actually. So we're having a combined. Uh, a display of art and um, awareness raising of International Lifeline Fund. That is tr- totally We'll have terrific. music like and uh, we'll have music and cultural dance and artwork, uh, including uh, photographs uh, from the field. So and how did they get to that? Interesting. Oh, it's just kind of happened. <laughs> is it on your site? I mean, is there anything on your website about it? Uh, it is not. It, it's about to go on our site. Okay, so good. So keep an eye open sure. on the site and. And make sure that you check that out. And he casually mentions water, which is probably the most important thing. Without air, you don't get to be here, and you also don't get to be here if you don't have water. So, would you let our listeners yeah. know what your water program is? Yeah, we're dealing with both of those, air and water. Um, our water program, basically, um, in in just as a as a preface, in countries like Uganda and Kenya and other parts of of, of uh, Africa. About 60% of the population does not have access to clean water. Now, that doesn't mean they're drinking the kind of water that we drink in, in the sink. Um, they're basically drinking from the most disgusting, vile, stagnant pools and contaminated springs you could imagine. Uh, water that you would not think about drinking unless you were literally dying of thirst and had absolutely no other choice. I mean, when I show people the places where people drink from, they're aghast at the notion that any human being would drink water from these sites would have to drink that. And yet, as I said, 50-60% of the population is drinking uh, from these these water sources. 
So basically, uh, our water program is based in Uganda, is is located in Uganda. We have uh, two drilling rigs and that we own and operate. And essentially, what we do is we we drill for water and we uh, install well um, a, a water pump. So how much does the water uh, cost these well, days? Well, we can do a. Um, excuse me a second. We can, you can, there are both um, um, deep boreholes and shallow boreholes. We can do a shallow borehole, which is about uh, 30 to 100 feet, for about $2,000. And really, just that's to dirt put, cheap. Yeah, dirt, dirt cheap, $2,000, $2,500. And to put that in perspective, that borehole will provide water for an average, maybe a, a village of 800 people. So I can take a child who is uh, sick with dysentery. Uh, typhoid, um, intestinal worms, and, and all kinds of other tropical diseases stemming from uh, uh, dirty water, and give that child clean water for years to come for the same for three three dollars, about the same price that it might cost us to go to the local drugstore and buy a bottle of water that will um, quench our thirst for lunch. It must make you crazy to be patient. To be patient. Yeah. It's a patient process that you're doing. And just thinking of, and I have a vivid imagination, okay, not like a bad thing, but I have a vivid imagination of people drinking out of those water holes that I don't know if you can tell or not, but I, it brought tears to my eyes. Okay. And it's like then to think about the patience that one has to go through to create this and collect that and do this and invite the people here and get, get things to things to happen and things of that nature, there's a, there's a patience to it. When I was at the United Nations, I was trying to find Ted Turner's dinner. You know, he'd given a billion dollars, and I was right. going to that dinner, <clears throat> and I met Harry Lerner <laughs> in the hallway of the United Nations, and he goes, trying to find, what are you trying to find, honey? And I said, the Ted Turner dinner. And he goes, let me show you. And he was all hunched over, and I asked him who he was, and he said, I'm Harry Lerner. And I said, what do you do, Harry? And he said, I'm a psychiatrist. And I said, wow, you've been, he says, yes, I've been here 25 years. And I said, wow, that's a long time. And he goes, peace takes time, honey. Peace (laughs) takes time. And it's like, I was just riding up in the elevator, and it's like, water takes time, but it's hard for me to, be patient like Harry Lerner and just hang in there day after day after day after day after day after day after day. It, it, it does take time. And, you know, and, and then you also have to deal uh, frequently with bureaucratic obstacles yeah. uh, that can get in your way. Absurd uh, it, bureaucratic it, obstacles. Exactly. But uh, now that we've got our, our two drilling rigs there, operational, we have our vehicles, we have our office, uh, we're able to, uh, if, we had a, if we had sufficient funding, we'd be able to do uh, as many as uh, five of these boreholes every week. Well, you want to uh, something, and you're bringing up something for me. There's a woman named mm-hmm. Carrie Axelrod who said that when you present something, if you can make people cry, you can collect money. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Terry Axelrod, I actually, I, I'm thinking after, remember I told you before the show stuff will come up you haven't mm-hmm. thought of? I'm going to call mm-hmm. Terry Axelrod because uh, I want to know if she's still helping charities put it together. But she knows... Mm-hmm that when something moves something, it's not that hard to connect when you find the right people. And um, I mentioned being a secure party creditor. There may be a way that I'm able to help, too. This is certainly a project that I like the bank for the buck thing a lot. You know, I think the the smile train. I love them. I give them them, 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 them
Yeah, I love them. bucks. Those yeah. guys will fix a, a, a smile. Yeah, I love them. Great. <laughs> I do, too. And then there's Heifer International. There's a lot of great places. So um, you and I should talk more after sure, that. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I, I'm not sure how all the pieces are coming together, but I've had some great people on Kindred Spirits, which is um, Elon Davidson and Ed Asner. Mm-hmm. Um, they put on a great show at the um, Disney Music Hall in Los Angeles, and um, they really do some incredible things with microloans and helping people with livestock and things of that nature. And um, my own foundation is the Golden Hearts Foundation in which people work together and help each other um, using radio as a tool. Uh-huh. See, there comes our music. We're using radio as a tool. They're telling us we have to get off the air now. So this program has been brought to you, Dan, <laughs> by the Golden Hearts Foundation in association with Kirkgaard Media, our radio partners, ConingCompany.com, Mona V, Max GXL, Dr. James Murphy and Memoriam, Stardust, Roberto's Bungalows in Mexico, and Jacqueline Joy Graham. We thank you, and thank you to the team at Voice America and to Ben Meigen for our theme music, Almost Ordinary People. Next week, invite a friend to listen. Write us at val at wakingupinamerica.com. And remember, Sidious Altius Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger. Go for it. All of your crazy schemes, love and dreams, and the time you spoke them. We're almost ordinary people. Thank you for joining us today for Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. Waking Up in America can be heard live every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Time on voiceamerica.com, and Valerie welcomes all emails at heavenincorporated.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.